Good to be with you. Uh, I don't know if you found your way back home or maybe where you call home, uh, but Easter weekend, once we had our weekend services together here, Jen and I made our way back home to see my family in the place where I grew up, and that is London, Ontario. So, yeah, wow, okay. I didn't know I was amongst friends. <laughs> I've been in Hamilton for 12 years now, so I, very much Hamilton feels like home. But it's a strange thing these days to go back to the place that you know, or maybe that you thought you knew. In the case of London, it is this rapidly expanding suburbia where there's just strip malls everywhere, and I cannot keep up with uh, all the expansion that's going on. And last weekend, uh, we were driving through a street that has been familiar to me much of my life, but now it's been overtaken where it was farm fields, now it's strip malls. And the thing that I noticed was that in these series of strip malls, it seemed as though every other store, and I, I don't even know if it's an exaggeration, it seemed like every other store was for a dentist. <laughs> And I don't have an answer to why there are so many dentists in London or why they've chosen to congregate in that one specific area. But it begs the question, it makes me wonder, say, well, can't there just be one dentist? You know, maybe, maybe they all just pull together and they have a giant tooth-shaped building so everyone knows that's the dentist's place. I don't I don't know how the dentist world works. Some of you can enlighten me on that. But just, it, it seemed like there's a lot of dentists. Is there really a need for such diversity of dentists? <laughs> I wonder, for people, you could drive down a lot of streets of Hamilton, probably a lot of cities for that matter, but let's say just Main Street, very close by here. To the outside observer, you would notice that there's a lot of church buildings. Like you can stand at one and you can probably count the next two just from eye shot. Like they're, they're very close to each other. We're moving into one of them that's just, you know, that way. To the outside observer, they may say, why are there so many churches? Couldn't there just be one? Why does it have to be so many? And the answer is very complicated. <laughs> it's one that I can't actually do justice to, to explain for us this morning why there is diversity in unity, why we seek unity, not uniformity, and why there's a very broken history of church division. And we've got so many churches that are so close to each other, proximity geographically, but maybe relationally, are very far apart. We're talking this morning, and you would have heard it uh, in the words of Jesus. The scripture that was read for us is a prayer of Jesus. It's actually some of his last words before he's betrayed. It's, it's, it's the thing that you get a glimpse into in the Gospel of John, that you see Jesus in his heart and his desire for his disciples and for us. I don't know if you caught it in his words, but he prays for us the people that the disciples would share his message with in the generations and generations and generations to follow. Jesus is thinking of us in that prayer. 
We're talking about unity today because we wanted to give some space to like, sort of help us as a community build a framework for how do we understand what it is to be one and gathered around something that's very central and holds us together, yet to be a diverse people. And how, how do we do that in a landscape, in a time, in the sort of this cultural moment where many people are very divided? What does it look like for us as a church? You could say Big C Church, the church. And what does it look like for Little C Church, St. Clair, to be unified in what we're growing in together? What I'm hoping to do is just to offer a bit of a teaser or maybe a setup that would help us to next week. So I, I will leave many things unanswered in talking about unity. So if you can just reconcile that now, that will, that will help me along the way. Next week, we're going to talk about the theology of women in leadership. Ooh, I know. You didn't see that one coming, did you? We've actually been planning it for a while. There's actually a lot of things that we want to give space to in the conversation of our community that are very important conversations. But we've realized as we've been giving thought to what do we talk about on a Sunday, what are the conversations and discussions that move into our missional families during the week, there are some things that we need to have a very patient, thoughtful, discerning, prayerful approach to how we talk about divisive stuff in our community. And we actually just, in the life of St. Clair, haven't taken the time to clarify why for us, women in leadership is a theology and a practice that we hold. I think it doesn't come as a surprise because you would have just seen women in leadership as part of our leadership team. It's been an ingrained value, an ingrained DNA in the life of this church since the beginning. But we want to honor that it's not, we, we don't want to just assume we all understand how that came to be. And so my hope today is just to give us a posture for how to approach things that maybe for some of us, we grew up with a very different understanding. So how do we reconcile this thing that we're now part of that's different than the thing that we once knew? And we're not assuming that all of us see it the same way. That some of us may hold different convictions in this community about an issue like women in leadership in the church. It's talked about a lot in scripture. So we'd want to just next week unpack a little bit as to uh, the lens that we bring to scripture and how that has formed us as a community. My attempt here is to help us understand why unity matters. And that for us as a church, it is a non-negotiable. And if you're doubting that, hear Jesus' words again. He says, my prayer is not for them alone, not just for the disciples. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, Just as you are in me, I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. I don't know if you hung on there for the wordy words of Jesus. That's sort of, it's a lifetime of pouring over these things that Jesus is talking about. But did you, did you catch that Jesus is saying, the way that the world is going to know that I have come to be the full revelation of love in this world as God made man, is that everyone's going to know that that's a real thing by being one. I don't know if, if we're passing that test. If that's the litmus test that Jesus has given to say, this is the way they're going to know, the world is going to know that I have come, is that they would be one. Like, well, what does Jesus mean when he's talking about one? Because this obviously matters to Jesus. This is one of his last prayers that we get to hear. Jesus, in this really sort of mysterious and wordy way, is saying, Father, I am in you, and you in me, and you in me, and I in them. He's describing this sort of seamless relationship, this beautiful integration of God, the Father, with Jesus, and with his people, and people with Jesus, and God, the Father, what we see modeled for us, what Jesus is talking about, is he's just describing the relationship that he's always had, even for, before the beginning of the creation. That there is a seamless unity of Father, Son, Holy Spirit that is this wonderful mystery. And we get this little glimpse into Jesus describing this reality that he's known for eternity. And he's saying, and we're bringing in your creation into it, that they would be one with us. And that there'd be this kind of restoration of relationship. That the fractured brokenness, the separation would be dissolved. And that, Father, just as we are one, your people whom you sent me to deliver this message, that they would be one with us. God, the Father, and Jesus, they're modeling this selfless giving, this sort of mutual submission where the Father gives Jesus the glory, but then Jesus is giving the glory to us. There's this just this giving away selfless nature of God that is modeled for us and that we are invited to live into that relationship as well. That we are invited into the same kind of union with God with each other. That's why when Jesus said the greatest command is to love God and love one another, it wasn't, there's never been the possibility that you could have one without the other. Jesus is really clear in his teachings to say, if you're to love God, you're to love one another. And you're not going to be able to love one another unless you know the love of God. And the two cannot be separated out. And that if you do not love one another, then you don't love God. That's like what, maybe one of the few things where Jesus is super black and white. He says, I, I need you to hear this. 
Don't confuse this one. If you don't love one another, if you don't forgive one another, God's not forgiving you. You have to know the forgiveness of God, and that has to work out into how you treat one another. Otherwise, you have not understood it. This is the thing we've been brought into. But it's, it's easier for us, or maybe I should say, sometimes it's easier for me to try to love a perfect God because, well, God's perfect. And, and I, it, maybe he's a bit more predictable in some ways. But to love people, loving people, that's hard. Because people can be idiots. <laughs> and I can be one of them. It is messy, messy, messy to live in unity with people when we, we just, we live in a broken state. How do we work, how do we make that work? Jesus just has this incredible demonstration, say, my life is about being given away, and so should yours. And that's his calling for the church is that we don't live for ourselves. We live to give our life away privately and corporately as a community. That is where we find unity. Spurgeon says this. He says, he's talking about Jesus, that his glory was that he laid aside his glory and that the glory of the church is when she lays aside her respectability and dignity, and counts it to be her glory to gather together the outcasts. That's that's a bit of what this whole unity thing is working towards. Now, why, as I've been reflecting on these words of Jesus and asking myself the question, well, what, what does Jesus mean by unity? What does he mean by oneness? Why is this so important? Why is that one of the markers that Jesus is holding up. Because I think in order to get unity, in order to understand that it's not about yourself, it's actually about something for the sake of the whole, it demands a mature life. I think when we start to understand unity and the importance of unity, our language starts to change. The filter that we bring to conversations or the perspective or attitude that we bring to the table is not a I, me, mine, but it shifts to a we, us, our. You're a little less concerned about getting what you think you deserve and you're willing to submit and surrender some of your own rights and some of your own wants for the sake of something bigger. That is the mature life of following Jesus, is that we learn to give our life away. And if we learn to do it as a community, we will grow in unity. That will be an inevitable outcome of our maturity as a community. I'm going to offer you Paul's words in Philippians, because I think he conveys with a real beauty and sincerity, just how much this matters, and how it is that Jesus gave us the example of this. This might be familiar to you. I hope that you hear it with fresh ears. It's Philippians 2. It says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, if any sharing in the Spirit, if any 
tenderness and compassion. Paul says, they make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the other. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, in being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness, And being found in the appearance of his man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Do you hear the tone of what Paul is saying? He's saying, if you've come to know the love of Jesus, let that dictate your posture, your attitude, your behavior with one another. And if you learn to love one another, you're learning to put the interests of others before yourself. That's that's what love looks like. It is a giving away for the sake of someone else. And Jesus for us, is our best and truest example of that. I think to talk about unity and this thing of giving up our own rights and just thinking about what's good for the collective whole, I would imagine for some of us and probably just for the world at large, it is going to come as a stumbling block or perhaps as foolishness the way that Paul talks about how the gospel is scandalous. That it doesn't make sense that a group of people would give up their own rights for the sake of another. Why would you do that? You're out there, you need to look out for yourself. If you don't take care of you, who's going to? Well, we're assuming the trust that God will take care of us and that we will take care of each other as we enact the very nature of God to one another. The role of the church, I think in many respects, is to be something unique in the world, perhaps something that the rest of the world is not. Walter Brueggemann says this. He says, the prophetic task of the church is to tell the truth in a society that lives in illusion. Grieve in a society that practices denial and express hope in a society that lives in despair. We don't have to look far to know we live in a very fractured and disordered world that's often dictated by competition or comparison. And that many of us find it easier to define our life by what we're against, not what we're for. We, 
we are living in this very polarizing world. I think what we're seeing in public discourse, if you turn on the TV, if you follow any Twitter feed or whatever your source is for information, you're seeing more and more this kind of tribalism take place in our world, that we've, we've longed for freedom and independence, that we don't want or need the restraints of something else telling us how we ought to live. And now that we've got some of that freedom and it tastes kind of good, this sort of individualism kicks in, we're now more and more, we're just islands onto ourselves, And so we're now searching for places of belonging and identity. And so we start to cling to certain ideologies or certain political or social or sexual ethics as the thing that will now give us our place of acceptance and identity. And we find the people who are just like us. And then we, we get in our ideological bunker and we kind of build up the walls real tight because we've, we've got the people that get us. And if you're not for us, you have to be against us. And we're, we're tossing out the, the word grenades to the other groups to dismantle them because they are a threat to us. And if you, if you threaten our ideology, you're actually threatening our identity. It's something much deeper. And I think we're just a lonely people. I think people are starved for places of being known and of belonging. What if that's the church? Is that the reputation that we carry in the world? That they would know that you have sent me because they are one. Our world is starved for safe places of belonging, what if it was the church? Francis Schaeffer says this. says, our relationship with each other is the criteria the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. I mean, people are just, they want to sniff out, is there sincerity in this thing we call family? Do we actually care and love for each other like a family would, even though we are actually strangers to each other? That doesn't make sense to the outsider looking in. So very, very humbly, I want to offer us a couple postures, a couple ways of approaching well, how do we're like, where do we even start in trying to practice unity in our own midst? Because if, if part of the call of the gospel and us living transformed lives is to love our enemies, maybe we just have to figure out how to love each other first. <laughs> and, then, and then we could get better at that part. So here's, here's some offering. One posture I think that would be required in growing in unity together is just simply to have humility. I think it takes the ability to say that we might be wrong on some things. Seek 
first to understand, not to be understood. If you're married, you, you probably know that somewhere along the way, in order for the other to grow and to flourish, there has to be some place of compromise where you're okay not to be right on everything. If you are not willing to be wrong on anything, well, you don't have to guess as to where that's going to lead you in your relationship. I think there's a certain humility that's required together as a community as we hold things that maybe we hold deep convictions to and as we should, but somehow living in the tension that someone else also holds a deep conviction as they should that might not perfectly line up with yours. And maybe that's okay. Maybe we can coexist in that reality. That's something we seek to do with women in leadership. There was no checking the box when you came in this morning to say, yes, I agree doctrinally, theologically with women in leadership. Therefore, I'm allowed in the door. It's actually not how St. Clair works. We hang our hat on practices to say we're committed to generosity, hospitality, to practicing the rhythm of Sabbath, of prayer, and of Scripture. These are the things that define our community, and they inform our theology and our doctrine. But what we're asking of you first is that we just be committed to living the way of Jesus together, and that we could be okay with some tension in our difference of backgrounds. Because when people ask me about St. Clair and they say, what was St. Clair like? And the most often way that I describe our community is to say that I think we're a bunch of contemplative charismatics. There's a bunch of people that just want quiet places to grow deeper with Jesus. And some of us have come from backgrounds where this is like a green light just to swing from the chandelier and praise Jesus for 10 hours. Like we, we come, like we are this amazing, and I think it's part of the most, one of the most beautiful things of who we are as a community is that we're coming from many different experiences. But how do we hold that well together? I think it takes some humility. I'll also offer us that it takes patience to live into this thing called unity. I can't help but think of this moment in John chapter eight where it's described that the Pharisees caught a woman in adultery, dragged her before Jesus as a trap and said, Jesus, our law says that she should be stoned. What are you going to do? And this is what Jesus did. He said, Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. People have debated for centuries what he wrote on the ground. No one knows. Someone said that this is the moment where he drew the Christian fish, but I refute that. (laughs) Gosh. Okay, back into the story. <laughs> it says, this is, this is what I, I want us to hone in on. It says, at this, 
those who heard what Jesus had said began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. It is so fascinating that we get that detail in this gospel that it was the older ones first who knew enough to put down the rock. I think there are many things worth being passionate for. Causes and things that demand the best of who we are. But maybe it requires some humility and some patience to say, well, maybe I don't have this whole thing figured out because six months ago, I wasn't even aware that that theory existed. And now it's everything. And everyone should get it and see it the way I see it now because I've seen the light. What if in six months, there's another theory that comes along that better informs how you see the world? My brother and his wife uh, had recently joined a, a church community in their neighborhood as they had moved to a new home. And they just had a really interesting comment because they joined a neighborhood church as an older Mennonite church. They're very much on the, on the young end. And they just said, oh, it's, it's kind of nice. Like, everyone's kind of figured out their stuff. Like, they've had 10, 20 years to wrestle through some very difficult issues. And they have now found a way to live into the grace and allowed for the tension not to divide them, but to actually unite them. And they just say, it's really refreshing. So, no, I bet it is. (laughs) Sounds really nice. Maybe we need some patience in how we come at the things that would divide us. I'll also offer us this presence. I haven't owned a TV in a long time. Uh, Yeah, at least 10, 12 years. So I'm often out of touch with commercials. But when I watched the Super Bowl this year, uh, I'm still fascinated by commercials. And there's a commercial that came out. Maybe you caught it. The start of it was a very stylistic approach. It had a very Apple-esque look to it. But there was enough hint to it that I was like, I don't know if this is an Apple commercial. But it was showing a lot of people on their phones without any commentary or any narration. It's just showing scenes of people on their phones. But you, you realize kind of every scene was going by and people are looking at their phones. They're kind of consumed by their phones. The light is, is glowing on their face. And you, you get this sense of, oh, maybe they're not selling phones. And then there's this subtle shift where all of a sudden phones aren't sort of present for people or in these, in these relationships, in these quick clips. And then by the end of it, There's this really beautiful scene of a whole bunch of people at a big banquet table just enjoying being present together with no phones. There's never any words on the screen or any commentary. It's just assuming that you're catching what's going on. And the commercial was for PC, foods. And the slogan was saying, we're better when we eat together. Oh, they hired some good marketers for that. They, they sucked me. They, but they're onto something, right? They're not like, they are selling a product, but they're speaking to a truth. 
how many of our conversations that become divisive unnecessarily are left to this or to this or some distance that doesn't actually have us present face-to-face with people. It's a whole lot harder to be angry at someone when you're looking at them in the eyes. It's very easy to... When you're behind a keyboard and just launch things that attack other people. What if we were a community that practiced being present together, even in our disagreement? It's part of why the meal is so central to the life of our missional families. It's because it's not assuming we all like each other, but we are better when we eat together. And so that's a practice that forms us and shapes us. And let me offer this as a posture, and that is to say repentance. I think when we look at the church today, I think it is okay and probably necessary to lament and to grieve the fact that we are divided and scattered in so many ways. There's a temptation to look and be like, well, I've got whatever church I want as the new flavor of the month. This is great. And you get, uh, heard the phrase, ecclesiastical whiplash. You're just going from denomination to denomination because you just, you just pick what best suits you. And I don't know if that's what Jesus was talking about in John 17. But it's our reality right now. And God has always, with the people of Israel right till now, has been gracious in accommodating us where we are at. But I think it is good for us to long and to want and to desire something more for our community and for the city and for this world. Do we pray Jesus' prayer that it would be unity that makes Jesus known in the world? Let me finish with this. I, I've wondered this for a bit. I wonder if... Where we, just as the church, have found ourselves so scattered and so divided on so many things that we are getting close to the point where we have exhausted our ability to divide ourselves. And that at some point, and I wonder if this is around the corner, that it is on the horizon, that we will find our way back to knowing what we agree with and that being defining who we are, not defining ourselves by what we disagree with. That is my hope. I wonder if that's what God is up to. When I think about St. Clair as us as a community, I don't know, somehow we've stumbled into a unique place. We have this growing partnership with this 24-7 prayer movement, and You've gotten glimpses of that along the way. But it's a broadly ecumenical movement. It's, it's, a, it's a movement that's more predominant in Europe. And the biggest sort of uh, denominational influences are Anglican and Catholic. And we, we get to share in that as part of this sort of bigger family of faith that we're a part of. We're a part of this thing called True City There's a whole bunch of churches in this city that are of different denominations that are working together for the good of the city. 
Granted, they're largely or almost entirely evangelical denominations, so we've got work to do in how we grow in unity within True City. But there's something beautiful we're a part of in our own city. And even just over this last year, we've been brought into conversations a bit more behind the scenes over and over again with the Anglican community in our city and in this Niagara region asking us, tell us your story again about how St. Clair started and how you do discipleship and how these practices are forming you. That sounds good. I think that could be of help to us. And the Anglican community has been knocking on our door. And now we're on the, on the cusp of sharing space and being welcomed in by a united church. And we're just all over the map on this. And I wonder if there's something God is doing in our midst that we need to celebrate and honor. And we need to learn to love each other well as God has perhaps given us a unique place in relationship with others. Let me leave you with this. This is Stanley Harwas. It says, the most interesting, creative, political solution we Christians have to offer our troubled society are not new laws, advice to Congress, or increased funding for social programs, although we may find ourselves supporting such national efforts. The most creative social strategy we have is to offer the church. Here we show the world a manner of life the world could never achieve through social coercion or governmental action. We serve the world by showing it's something that it is not, namely a place where God is forming a family out of strangers. St. Clair, that's us. We're trying to be a family on mission together. And we're not all the same. We're not one giant big affinity group. We're here because we love Jesus and we want the love of Jesus to be known. That's the thing that holds us together. If we learn to do that well, There might be people who come to know the love of Jesus because we know what keeps us together. It will cost us something along the way because it costs Jesus everything to reconcile the world to himself on the cross. So we're going to remember that. We're going to celebrate that and give thanks for that together. And Amy Knox is going to lead us through communion. Um, And I'll invite our worship crew to come on up as she does that as well.